Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. Yeah, a couple false starts where we try to figure out sound. Yes, if the sound is bad, uh, tell Aaron. Don't tell me. Okay. (laughs) Well, where do you want to start? Uh, Do you mind if I start with a bit of self-promotion? Yes. So uh, what podcast network are we part of, Aaron? We're a proud part of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. And as I'm sure you know, Aaron, um, Dialogue doesn't just do podcasts. They've been around 50-some years, and they started on paper, and I'm going to be in their next paper issue. Oh, fantastic. I'm, I wrote a book review, uh, a books review, really. I'm reviewing three books. And I'd like to share a paragraph with you because I think it's relevant to what we're talking about today. Okay. It's the third paragraph of the, uh, you know, go buy the issue. It's not out yet, but it will be very soon. Since 2020, three significant new approaches to the Joseph Smith story have been undertaken in comics, each successfully breaking a path through the gnarled forest of known history. In short, Pillar of Light, written by Andrew Knaup and drawn by Salvaluto, takes varied versions of one event and correlates them into one clear whole. In The Glass Looker, Mark Elwood does not attempt to smooth together the prophet's early life, but presents each version of the boy Joseph as a series of sometimes contradictory vignettes, and Noah Van Skyver's long-awaited Joseph Smith and the Mormons builds the epic story of the man's prime years to a coherent but complicated wholeness. All three of these graphic novels engage in the task of turning Joseph Smith's complex history into a true story. They use diverse tools and present conclusions of varying ambiguity with distinct amounts of the personal, but they are all addressing who this man was and what he means now. Any guess why why I think that's a good start to our discussion? Because history is is hard. (laughs) History is hard, yeah. And in the first paragraph, I quote Ada Palmer, who's a Renaissance scholar and science fiction writer. And she says, she figures that we know 1% of what happened 500 years ago, and two-thirds of that 1% is wrong. <laughs> um, and the first the, the first sentence of the second paragraph in the article we're looking at today says this, religious communities perform theological work when they tell historical narratives. How we understand Joseph Smith and what stories we tell about him makes a big difference in terms of what it means to be a Latter-day Saint. I just want to break down what you just said. Religious just to... yeah wait, religious wait. Oh. communities religious communities perform theological work theological work when they tell historical narratives okay 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 what you're saying is that religious communities apply theology and or even create, create theology. theology yeah when they tell their histories the first example Miranda Wilcox who's our author gives is the exodus telling the story of the exodus creates theology and a sense of what it means to be uh, an Israelite and a Jew today. Well, what is an example of some of the theology that the Exodus story creates? Well, we are God's chosen people. Mm -hmm. We have been taken out of bondage. Mm -hmm. We have been saved. Um, Manna from heaven. Yeah, the Passover. Mm -hmm. All these stories and their importance and the way they connect to each other creates a metaphor in which we understand eternity and our relationship with God. Um. Okay, great. This is a perfect framing. Um, I And the comics that you're describing... Are very good. Are very good. And what you're saying is that they are doing this theological work. They are, and they're doing it in different ways. So Pillars of Light... This is all in my review, if you want more details. But Pillars of Light is trying to take the official narratives, by which they mean ones they feel Joseph Smith himself wrote, and combine them into a coherent whole. Mm-hmm. The Glass Looker isn't trying that at all. It's taking all the stories ever told about Joseph Smith and throwing them together, even if they completely contradict. So you have a vignette where he's a cripple, and in the vignette in the next one where he's a particularly strong young man. And all these different vignettes just coexist in chaos together. 
and um the cripple referring to like his bones his injuries. bones yeah because according to some stories the kid could barely walk joseph smith was um you know he was deeply damaged and had a limp and couldn't get around and so people called him things like cripple uh and and other versions he was sort of famed for his his good health and his strength and how he could just do things and he was both those things as a teenager simultaneously and which story we choose tells us something different about joseph smith not a great word cripple anymore is it no i, I think it's i think it's not beloved mm-hmm. yeah Int- okay but it but it, for the time that was what he was called like that's what people said so i uh, send your angry letters about that one to me <laughs> so but it is historical work a theological work to tell these stories arguably i'm not sure the glass looker or noah van skyver's novel are really working hard at telling theology and pillar of light probably is but I think what's really matters is the cumulative effect of all the storytelling. It's not one person's book tells us what it means to be Mormon. It's that all these books together sort of form a historical path in which we understand ourselves. Okay. Part of me really dislikes everything that you're saying. I'm going to say say why in a second. But first, I want to promote the fact that our article today is called Narrating Religious Heritage, subtitle, Apostasy and Restoration. So we're yes. going to be talking about apostasy. We're going to be talking about restoration. We're going to be talking about history. All right. And it's written by Miranda Wilcox. And I think it's one of the denser articles that we've done so far I in the season. I think so. Her style is a little denser. Yeah. Um, which is fine. And it's great. It's good. Um, but it did leave a few questions unanswered, which we may or may not get to. It kind of makes me th- appreciate one possible role of our show, which is perhaps if you, this feels a bit braggy. I'm, I don't know of a way, better way to say this. I'll allow us to bridge the scholarly no. with the lay because yeah. i'm a i really approach a lot of this the language in here i can tell comes from somebody who is steep in historical writing the language is scholarly and um i don't want to say precise but it is careful it's careful and um deliberate and it and it's different than some of the other articles that we've that we've read, and I would think it's different. It definitely doesn't feel have a casual tone. It's and I like that. It feels yeah. um, in some ways like I would, I'm reading a scientific paper, right? It, but it's it's a different kind of language, but it has that kind of scholarly feel. I didn't anticipate talking about the feel of the article, but yeah. I, but you know I'm interested in that kind of stuff. But I, I also think that part of what um, he's doing and uh miranda feel free to send me an angry letter if i'm wrong but i think part of what she's doing is her her, this is her entire field right is how christianity existed in eras that many members of the church dismiss as unimportant the dark ages the great apostasy they don't matter that is her field of study and she disagrees fundamentally with that idea okay Hold that, hold that thought for a second. Yeah. I just want to say what I meant when I when I said I disliked what you were saying before. Oh, okay. Because... Yeah. Oh, wait. Actually, first, yes. just a reminder: the article is published in BYU Studies, not Dialogue. Yes. <laughs> that we're you know Dialogue podcasting, and you know, understand. But yes, the, we are going through this season. If you're just joining us for the first time, with their uh, issue yet to be revealed, which are open questions in Latter Day Saint theology. This was published in two, 2021. Yeah. Um. So what I'm trying to say is that the fuzziness of history bothers me. the four accounts of joseph smith seeing heavenly Mm -hmm. father and jesus christ bother me Mm -hmm. because um i am a believer in objective truth 
which smells like warm pretzels. Good, good, good thing. Good thing you didn't go into journalism <laughs> <laughs> or history. Science was the right place for you. <laughs> um, right. Okay. That's all I'm trying to say. But this article, I think, um, wrestles with the fuzziness in a way that's really interesting. Okay. Narrating religious heritage, apostasy, and rest and restoration. You mentioned that it's from this yet-to-be-revealed um, journal issue. Yes. Where every article that we've talked about so far this season has had a specific question that we were able to identify immediately, right? Yes. Um, what Open does it mean when Satan, when Satan is reducing our agency? Yeah. What is Was Jesus Christ married yes. or not, right? What is doctrine? What is doctrine itself um, and so forth? Um, what's the question in this article like i think it's an interesting problem what is the question here my first thought was uh what is the great apostasy i don't think that's it was there a great apostasy maybe but i don't think that's it either like ultimately it is something about what how do we understand the restoration in the history of everything and not just since 1820 i, I think you're getting closer i think if i was going to restate what the question this article is posing mm -hmm. is do we believe as a church mm -hmm. in a great apostasy with disastrous negative consequences yeah. for humankind or i mean one way you could phrase that was is the great apostasy a necessity for there to be a restoration or even is it necessary for our theology yeah that to believe in a great apostasy or is that phrasing perhaps a fundamental misunderstanding of god's work on this earth an oversimplification i think this ties in a lot with things we've talked about a lot but um in a very new way it's a new light to shine on everything we talk about let me just say the obvious thing up front okay, okay? Say it. if i am teaching a person who is not a member of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints yes and i use the following sentence it will be interpreted negatively. Okay? okay, let's hear it. The following sentence is, all the other churches are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and yet that is darn close to what God says in the first vision, in the canonized version. Yeah, yeah. And I think what um, Dr. Wilcox, Miranda Wilcox? I think doctors is safe. I actually just have that open. Give me just one second. I'll, I'll tell you. Yes, she has. she got her doctorate from Notre Dame. Okay, so what Dr. Wilcox is telling us here is that um, that framing not only is negative, but didn't necessarily line up with some of the early history of the church, Yeah, and doesn't seem to be in tune with what the modern church is teaching. Yeah, it feels sort of like an, a late 19th and 20th century phenomenon. Yeah. Out of step with Joseph Smith and out of step with the 21st century. Okay, let me tell you a story. I'm here listening. Um, even just this week, mm -hmm. I used the hand analogy for teaching apostasy to my seminary students. The hand in the glove? Nope, you're thinking of spirit death. Yeah, I'm not sure how you'd use that for apostasy. Imagine, imagine if you will, dear uh -huh. listener, take your hand out and hold it out in front of you and put one right. finger on your pinky, Okay. That represents the dispensation of Adam. Okay. Okay? Uh -huh. Now, the dispensation of Adam fell. Okay. Right? And dispensation here mm -hmm. is a key word in the church that refers to 
Um, I don't know anymore after this article. Okay, so let's just use the old way of, of thinking. It was a time in which people were talking to God before they got wicked and he stopped talking to us. The priesthood was on the earth? Yes. The Everything was set up. The authority to administer ordinances was on the earth, hmm. right? And prophets were directly communicating to God to guide the church. Yeah. Okay, Adam. Okay, then what happened? Adam's church disappeared by the time of... Like around, it's in, unclear. Yeah, whatever. Let's that just say that around. Is. <laughs> so your your finger traces down the gap between your next finger. Oh, it's like a okay. A valley traces oh, a valley. That's okay, All that's right. that's the that's the church not being on the earth anymore. And then okay. it goes to your ring finger. That's Noah. But unfortunately, okay, the, Noah. This has always bothered me. I know, and I used this analogy uh -huh. without even thinking in uh -huh. seminary because it was so. Um, embedded into my nature that I this is how I understand the apostle. The hand thing. The hand thing. I've never heard of this before. Okay, so you, yeah. then after Noah, it fell again, and sure. then we have Moses, right? Yes. Moses was another dispensation. During each one of there's gaps when yeah. the church and the authority to it preach doesn't exist is gone. It right? does seem to make uh, Satan the perpetual winner here. At some point, it fell again, and now we've got Christ who established yeah. a dispensation. That's your index finger. Although, I, if that's the case, where did John the Baptist get the authority? He okay, so I know that this is an imperfect analogy because yeah, yeah. I only have five fingers. I actually <laughs> think that there's like seven dispensations. I think something like point that. Point that, yeah. that the gap between your index finger and your thumb is really big. Oh, that's the point. Is that's it? the point. Okay. Okay. So there's this huge gap as you fall down, um, and then that's the uh -huh. if you this is this is that's the dark ages. Yeah. Right. And there's yes. no the church, God's church is off the earth, and then Joseph Smith yeah. restored it. Mm -hmm. And that section is called the Great Apostasy, and the Great Apostasy is meaning that it's distinctly anti-Catholic. For it's sure, it's distinctly <laughs> anti-Catholic. It's a rejection of all the papal claims. Yeah, and um, it's not unique to our church. It's no. exactly, and this is one of the things that Dr. Wilcox describes. That That's what a lot of the Protestants, Protestants said. were teaching. In fact, we stole this idea from them. Yeah. Well, still, that's, that's, uh, that's, mm, the, that's not how the restoration works. It's uh, taking truths from all sources. But this is one of the things that I find interesting about this is like Joseph Smith's idea of the great apostasy was very different from Beatrice Roberts for James Talmadge's. So is that the continuing restoration? Except for now we're moving closer to a Joseph Smith idea again. So is that the continuing restoration? Or, or are those the faults of men? Or is that something we needed in order to establish our... Like, I don't know. It raises some interesting why questions that we're not going to answer. I actually think that this article is more cut and dry. Oh, you do? Than like any any of the other ones that we... I kind of do too. I think she's right. I think she's just right. Yeah. I think that she's And that's not... why we can't find the question is because she's really just trying to show us that she's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's different. The other ones in the articles... Other articles yeah. that we've looked at, I've just simply said here's some evidence to one interpretation yeah. of some difficult doctrine right um for example i just want to use an example from one of our previous shows so i would say for example there is movement between kingdoms in the celestial kingdom or not or not right yeah universalism versus not universalism yeah right here's some evidence on one side of the argument mm -hmm. right are souls assigned a degree of glory forever or are they not? Yeah. That's the and then there's some other sides. Okay. I don't think she's arguing this. What no. she's doing is instead saying, look at history. Yes. And look at how we've changed. And aren't we happy that we're better now? 
that we're telling this new story. That we're, telling, we're starting to at least. But we need to recognize that as a church. Yeah. Because I think that the I think what she's saying is that our prophets and leaders are ahead of us in this regard. Yeah. And we need to bring the rest of our membership forward and drop this apostasy narrative. But not drop it, change it. Understand it in a new way. Change it from a negative to a positive. Yeah, well, I, I don't want to say that apostasy is positive, but the pro- that's the problem with the word apostasy is I think in, in our culture and our theology, it is inherently negative at this point. So it's... Well, let, let me uh, borrow something she said. Something that was written in the ti- in Times and Seasons, almost certainly written by Joseph Smith, goes like this. Uh, Joseph Smith, probably Joseph Smith, wrote, While one portion of the human race are judging and condemning the other without mercy, which sounds a little bit like us judging the people in the great apostasy, the great parent of the universe looks upon the whole of the human family with a fatherly care and paternal regard. He regards them as his offspring and without any of those contracted feelings that influence the children of men. He is a blah, blah, blah. And he will judge people according to the law they have and according to their experiences. And everyone's going to get treated well. But ultimately, her point in quoting Joseph Smith is that for Joseph Smith, restoration wasn't a, a cut moment in which before him, everyone was bad. And after everyone was good. In, in Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph Smith's mother's uh, personal narrative, there's a lot of miracles and revelations and things before the restoration begins. And Joseph Smith did not seem to reject that. And early church members did not seem to reject that. Joseph Smith, she writes, um, saw restoration as, quote, gathering, linking, and building upon truths manifest through human histories and cultures, unquote. The whole world is part of the restoration. Restoration is not simply taking something that was lost and restoring it, but taking all things that are lost and putting them together, all things, all the pieces, all the truths that are across the world and bringing them back together. I think we have, um, as podcasters, an interesting task here, because I kind of want to just say, here's what she said, and she's right, okay? (laughs) Which isn't, I want to make it useful to the listeners, (laughs) right? Well, can I, I'm going to find that quote now, because I think that, I, I think this is maybe the strongest piece of evidence that she puts into this article, and it's referring to the Book of Mormon. Um, she's quoting Frederick and Spencer in their article, Remnant or Replacement. Click on the links and follow the footnotes. Anyway, they say, the Book of Mormon and other aspects of the Restoration correct the prevalent anti-Jewish replacement theology in Christianity by recentering the Christian message on covenantal Israelite foundations through the rehabilitation of a remnant theology. In other words, early Christianity made the mistake that we've made for the last hundred years of saying the Jews were wrong and Jesus is a restoration. And the Book of Mormon says, no, I forget the exact quotation. He's like, where, where do you think, where do you think you got the Bible? Except for it came from the Jews. So First Nephi 11 through 14. Yes. And the idea that the Nephi is promoting is like, look, Jesus and Israelite theology, those are one and the same, and they go together, and you put them together, and you have a, a full story. And that is the mistake we're making, is we're trying to throw out all these aspects of Christianity as if we know better, um, and say that we are replacing Christianity, when we're not. We, in, in the same way that the Christians did not replace the Jews, we are supposed to be building on and growing and becoming something else. It's really funny that you say that because, you know, I just finished teaching the Old Testament last year 
we did the Old Testament in Sunday school last year, and every chapter in the manual seemed to be about, let's find how this scripture is about Jesus Christ. Right? Yeah. And Why if, are we so good at that with the Old Testament and not so good <laughs> with it when it comes to Christian history? <laughs> so just to restate kind of a little bit what's happening here, the argument is that in, early, in the early 1800s, Yes. That there were kind of two ways to, that I think people thought of, of the, there was some rhetoric starting all early mm-hmm. about, about the apostasy and a rejection of, well, the papal claims, right? Just, just, just to state it up front, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There was already that starting, but there simultaneously was this understanding that if you, where you came from, your Baptist, your Lutheran, your Protestant source, yeah, has so much goodness, yes, right. That's so much preparation about the Savior, so much um, knowledge about God that moving into the LDS Church was easy, yeah, because you're already you're already there. You just need a little bit that Joseph Smith is bringing along. That's what President Hinckley always said, right? Bring the good you have and see if we can't add a little bit more. And that gap between the 1860s and President Hinckley is what's interesting. Yes. Because that's when the great apostasy narrative was really established. And it's interesting that it happened... She said that it happened in two specific places. Yeah, and and it seemed to happen with the first generation that did not come from another church, right? You had your first generation of kids born into the church who saw themselves as a different people and they didn't feel a need to reconcile their grandparents' theology. And this was all during the um, point in the church, during the time in the late 1800s. Late 1800s, yes. When the church was repudiating its own belief in polygamy. Polygamy, and that a real crisis of identity. Crisis of identity. And also we're separated from the rest of the world. And why not be separated in every way? Yeah. We're separated in some ways already. So we're putting that behind us and we're both trying to establish our identity while reintegrating into the United States at the same time. And how did we do that? Well, we crystallized around this narrative, this historical theological work, right? That Joseph Smith restored the church. And that it was gone until 1830, right? Yeah, and, um, it is pithy and easy to understand. It is pithy. It's straightforward, right? It mm-hmm. lets you. And this is the, this is the part that really got me. Okay, I'm actually going to quote it directly. This simplified, standardized narrative of the great apostasy was easily communicated to members and converts. It promoted institutional unity by differentiating Latter-day Saints from other denominations competing for converts and by fostering a shared historical consciousness among members separated by geography, nationality, and ethnicity. So what she's saying, I love her language. I'm telling you, the scholar (laughs) in me, right, loves her language. I really do. Okay, what she's saying is that this simple idea of the priesthood being gone and coming back, the church being gone and coming back, right? What it did was it let us unify together and let um, people who were not in Utah have a shared identity, right? 
Nevertheless, the narrative discouraged Latter-day Saints from seriously engaging with history before 1820. And, and it still happened. Right. Anything between the death of Paul and 1820 does not happen. Come doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And it hampered for, okay, let's, let's, let's actually do two. I want to have two conversations okay. about these, about this point. First, that we completely ignore history between the end of the New Testament, right? And 1820. For a people that research suggests that we know our scriptures better than most Christians. Yeah. But we don't know Christian history. Like at all. Squat. Yeah. And it hampered friendships with people of faith whose religious histories were and traditions were dismissed as, quote, gross darkness, unquote, <laughs> prophesied in Isaiah 60, 20, verse 2. Yeah. In other words, we read the Old Testament. We saw that there was prophecies about a great fall, right? Yeah. And we said, okay, that's what this is. We can just ignore all that history. And call and because it was the dark ages. Yeah, and, and let's not forget that. And I'm sure you heard this when you were a kid too. Uh, I did hear a couple times something about like Martin Luther or John Wesley or something. As people yes. who and I and I recognize I'm drastically yeah. overstating the uh, the idea. There were lots of times when we talked about Martin Luther. When yeah. We, when we talked about um, the Council of Nicaea, a lot of those times. Yeah, were, that was the negative one. That was a lot of those times were. Um, we're negative, yeah, but when they shouldn't have been. But but my point was that America, or excuse me, the church comes of age in America, which is born of a religious tradition that is distinctly separating itself from Catholicism, and so rejecting Catholicism is a very American tradition, which is kind of <laughs> wild now that. Well, it's why JFK we so was Catholics. right. It was why JFK would never. Nobody thought he would get elected, right? Because he was Catholic, and and that wasn't a great. I mean, there was an anti-Catholic party, and. Being anti-Catholic was just as, you know, kosher as being anti-Mormon or, you know, it's fine. Like, of course you're anti-Catholic. Like, why wouldn't you be? Uh, and so we, America is also telling the story of what it is and through those stories creating a sort of theology. And it's it's a distinctly anti-Catholic thing. We're definitely influenced by that. Hopefully it's better now. I think it's better. <laughs> <laughs> it's different, certainly. So those are the two points that I think that are most interesting to me. Let's well, ignore history before 1820, and um, you know, by, and by extension, this hampers our relationships with other people. Let me ask you a question. It, there's a frequently recurring thesis on our show that it is important for our faith to embrace the things that separate us, that make us weird, that make us strange, because otherwise, what's the point of us? It seems that this article is arguing that not so much we should embrace every religion, but we should accept them as being worthy in their sphere and good and something worth engaging with. Um, isn't throwing out the great apostasy making us less weird? Um, it, it, yeah, it's a good way to get way to rephrase it. It is kind of a distinctly LDS. It's not really though. I mean, no, but it is something that separates us from, like it is a it is a, a line that we draw that separates us from other people, and there's some value to that we've established. I mean, we don't usually establish it in terms of other religions are sinful and are the devil or anything like <laughs> which kind of some people have done with the great apostasy narrative. Mm -hmm. But um, is there a risk there of 
moving past the simplicity, the great apostasy to losing track of what, what our purpose is? The risk, I mean, I could swing the pendulum all the way in the other direction where we think that um, actually, you know what, Every, everything's fine. The Joseph Smith restoration didn't really do much, right? Mm-hmm. There are churches just as good as any, as any, any to quote yeah. Reverend Lovejoy from The Simpsons. You know, Homer Simpson, why don't you just go somewhere else, man? All the churches are about the, are about the same. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that I would say that would depend. That's that's too far in the other direction, right? We really do believe in a restoration. And I really do love the Joseph Smith quotations here. This idea that God loves everybody, his arms open wide. There's a line near the end where she says, like, reframing that thinking of the restoration not so much as fixing the past, but as a preparation for the second coming, a way of like bringing all the pieces together, not rejecting the past, but bringing the present together with the future in order to prepare for the second coming. She says, this reframing invites Latter-day Saints to narrate processes of restoration extending across human history and culture, rather than dismissing whole eras as apostate. I mean, the idea that there's nothing of spiritual value we can learn for over an 1800 year period is, is obvious nonsense. It just doesn't make sense. But does that, by recognizing that the great apostasy is perhaps an oversimplification that was helpful perhaps culturally for a time, but is ultimately a dead end, does that, what kind of responsibility does that put on us? Well, first of all, I think that Dr. Wilcox is saying that it's time to drop the word the great apostasy from our LDS vocabulary. Yeah, I don't think it's helpful. I I don't, and first of all, do you agree with me saying that that's what she's saying? Yes. I I mean, I think she would, she does not really get into theology in this article about theology. It's good history. Yeah, it's good history. I, I think that it is safe to say that her reading doesn't reject the idea of apostasy as the priesthood was lost and needed to be restored, that sort of thing. But the idea that nothing good happened or even that it was so simple as the church died and had to be brought back, like those those kind of statements are those kind of statements are short sighted and unfair and probably just wrong. There are plenty of good people at all periods of time. It's weird, like I've noticed in discussion, it seems a lot easier for Latter day Saints to say, hey, there's like good stuff in Taoism, Buddhism, and other, you know, very non-Christian, non-Judeo-Christian parts of the world, and say, we need to recognize the value in those, and um, hey, 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 there's, every every nation is giving, given the information that God gives them the information they need, or whatever it says in Alma, and I think it's a little harder for us to say that with our closer relatives, meaning the rest of Christianity. Um, is that, do you think that's an accurate assessment or is that just me being in Berkeley too long? No, I think that, um, <laughs> and serving the nation mission. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, that, I think, I think you're right. I think that this has been a problem in the past. Mm-hmm. I think generally we've been dismissive of, um, all the, all the fantastic religious history that exists in Christianity in the world. Uh, some of the conversations you and I have had about Eastern Orthodox Christianity has mm-hmm. blown my mind. They um about deification and um it's it's really really cool and different, right? And and the um you know a friend of mine commented on our discussion about the great God 
that Parley oh. P. Pratt talked about. Yeah. Right. And he was like, yes, this is what you should be talking about. <laughs> he loved it. Right. He's not our, he's not LDS. Mm-hmm. He loved this, this great God idea. Yeah. Right. And so this kind of stuff is really, is really cool. Um, but I can see why it's not in Sunday school. Sunday school is so focused. Sunday we, they is... only, do you know, the church only gets us for an hour I a know. week, right? Why? They don't got time Why for this. They don't got the, here's the thing. <laughs> let me put it from, let me put it from the perspective yeah. of the church leadership, right? Yeah. For, for, okay. Well, first of all, I think the church really is backing off of this and I think she has good evidence for this. Yes, she says, I think in April, 2020, yeah. In April, 2020, president Russell M. Nelson presented a proclamation in honor of the anniversary of anniversary of the first vision titled the restoration of the fullness of gospel of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a bicentennial proclamation to the world without mentioning the word apostasy. And that's key. Which I didn't even notice, but that is, that, is key. that would not have happened in the 1980s. Yeah. Without mentioning the word apostasy, the proclamation outlines the unique mission of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to prepare for the second coming of Jesus Christ and the ongoing nature of the restoration. And um, that began with Joseph Smith's sacred prayer, prayer in 1820. This reframing invites Latter-day Saints to narrate the process of restoration extending across human history, history and culture rather than dismissing whole eras as apostate. Okay, Fanta- this is excellent. It's fantastic, yeah. right? And, and what it tells us is, by extension, we should be taking some time and looking at other religious traditions, right? Yeah. And this is what my point was. Why don't we in Sunday school? Because we don't got time. Well, but that's a choice, too. I mean, think about the time before before we were gestated, Aaron, mm-hmm. um, before the three-hour block, mm-hmm. which I don't remember. I'm, I'm old enough. I was there, but okay. I don't remember it. Uh-huh. Um, I never went to nursery, Aaron, because oh, that's I'm too in, old. There was no nursery. Statement. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember it. Uh, but my point is, it used to be there were different days of the week, right? Like um, some, Sunday school was on Sunday, I presume, based on its name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sacramento was on Sunday, but primary was on Wednesday or some other day. And, and that's how it was. And And you go back to like, pre-modern correlation where we have the four standard works every four years in constant rotation for Sunday school. And there were manuals for all sorts of funny things for Relief Society or the Elders Quorum. And um, it didn't have to be the, the standard works on this quick schedule, which does, frankly, I mean, it may be focused, but it does the Old Testament in particular short shrift. Um, there, it's not a perfect system, the one we have now. And it's, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I doubt it will last forever. And it will change. And um, and I'm not saying that Sunday school is necessarily the right place to learn about St. Bernadette or something. But there's room okay, somewhere let me if just we give, choose for there to be room. Let me just give you an example. Okay? Yeah. I taught John the Baptist in seminary recently. Yeah. Right? And so one of the things I've been enjoying doing in seminary is just going onto Wikipedia and just looking at what's written there about these famous events in yeah. the New Testament and the Bible, right? Because it's not the Bible dictionary, which has a very LDS-centric ex- um, mm-hmm. uh, description of the events, right? And it's crammed to the smallest space possible. Yep, and it's not <laughs> like an anti-Mormon website, right? It is yeah. pretty well moderated by this point. Yes. Um, it's, not, um, and it's not an atheist website. Right? No. It's got plenty of religious people that contribute to it, right? It's a different... 
backgrounds what and it, heritages. What it really is, is historical. And sure enough, if you go and you read the section on John the Baptist, I'll just pull it open right now. Look, okay, you got it open? I got it open. Look on the right-hand side, okay? And look at the phrase, venerated by. Do you see it? Oh, yes, I do. Tell me what it says. Venerated, venerated in Christianity, all denominations which venerate saints, Islam, Druze faith, the Baha'i faith, and Mondayism. There's a couple there I do not recognize. That's what I'm trying to say. Isn't that really cool? Who are the Druze? John the Baptist is such an important character. Character. Person. <laughs> don't, don't. <laughs> he, was a he is a character. He is a character. No, man. That guy. <laughs> but the point is that he is beloved, venerated mm -hmm. by... So many different people. And I just think it's interesting when I was reading about this to find out more about it. I read yeah. about the Islam. I, I read about the Islam faith and about why they venerate him. Yeah. And who they call him, right? And um, the Baha'i. Obviously, we have some Baha'i mm -hmm. in, here in Berkeley. We do. Um, and yeah, Druze and Mandism are very interesting as well, if, yeah. you, if, you want to, if you want to look at it. Apparently, I, 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 this is based on the first paragraph on... The article on Mondayism, so this could be totally wrong. Yeah. If you're Mondayist, mm -hmm. I'd love to like reach out, please. But it sounds like he's kind of their Muhammad, okay. the final prophet, the great prophet. That's, yeah, that's fun. That's interesting, right? Okay, that's that's interesting. It gives a different kind of perspective on the history of understanding um, John the Baptist, right? Yeah. Um, another interesting fact: if you go down and look at relics. Oh, <laughs> how, how many, the weight of how many humans yeah. are there? How many the different parts of John the Baptist <laughs> do you think exist, right? Uh, at least a hundred. There are three guess. or four specific um, uh, understandings of where his head is. Oh, just right? his head. Just his head, right? There's his right hand, his left hand, um, his um, decapitation cloth, right? Mm -hmm. part, his left finger bone, right? Like I said, this is just... Interesting. It helps you understand more about history. Obviously, we know where John the Baptist's head is. Do we? Oh, I guess it's on his shoulders. It's on his shoulders. Is that the... Oh, well, that, that's a different question. <laughs> a very interesting question. We'll hold off on that. Um, no, I think this is a great point. And, and it gets to... I think we have this egotism. Wait, what's my of, point? Oh, I, I think your point is that there's a lot... It's rich, and it's interesting, and it's fascinating, and there's really excellent things. Um, and just because they can't all be true... John the Baptist could not have had four heads, for instance. Like, yes. Just because all that stuff can't be true doesn't mean there isn't a lot of value there. It kind of reminds me of the section of the Doctrine and Covenants about the Apocrypha, where uh, Jesus tells Joseph Smith, like, sure, read the Apocrypha, it's not going to hurt you, but they're like better things, quote unquote. But that doesn't mean we can neglect everything else, right? Out of the best books. And, um, you know. One of the things I was trying to say is that I really respect the church's um, decision, okay, to use our time carefully as members of the church, right? We've yeah, got, we've that's got fair. we've got two meetings on Sunday, right? One is the sacrament meeting and just trying to feel the spirit as hard as you can, yeah. right? <laughs> and the other is either Sunday school, elders quorum, relief society, or the young men's or young women's, right? It yeah. is primary. It is focused, right? Yeah, and I, I'm not necessarily saying that's wrong, right? That that's not my intention. But uh, but how do we narrate a different religious heritage? Well, first, I think it's helpful that leadership has been so explicit, but I'm not sure we've picked up on it. Right. I'm not sure I picked up on it. It was interesting reading the article because it was all about how the narration changed over time. 
And at first I was like, oh, Joseph Smith said these things. That's so interesting. Oh, the early saints said this. Oh, it's so interesting. And it got to like, oh yeah, this is what this is what people believe now. That's when it got to the 19th century stuff. I was like, this is what we believe. And, I've, and because of conversations we've had on the store, on the show, I feel like we've kind of moved away from that anyway. And then it got to the 21st century section. It's like, oh, I'm just part of this narration and the flow of history here. Like I am, I too am following this path. And like, I agree with what the leaders say on this. That we need to be more open and friendly, and it's not about rejecting previous or alternate versions of Christianity. It's it should be a lot more welcoming and open and restoration oriented. I mean that Hinckley quote, that President Hinckley quote, is so good, right? We will use what you have, right, and add to it. Yeah, right. That's really really cool. And the 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 paradigm shift. I think what's being argued here, that again, mm -hmm. like you said, I just think that we didn't notice it as much. And we're just calling it out explicitly here. It just happened. It just happened. Is that it's, it's that we just, it's, we don't look at 1800 years of Christian history and dismiss it. It yeah. is, wow, look at all this amazing stuff that happened. And then Joseph Smith appeared, right? Yeah. That's a different story. It's a different theological work yeah. than this is the apostasy and this is the Dark Ages. And I think inherently it's a much more Latter-day Saint attitude. It is. It is. And it's always been there. Let's yeah. be fair to some, our, some of our previous leaders. They've always have said these kind of things. It's just that the other narrative also dominated, I think. Yeah. And um, I can't remember. Did you ever read? On the apostasy? I have read the Great Apostasy. Yeah, that was the name of the book, The that Great Apostasy. The the yeah, I've read that. I've, I've read that. How, how are your memories of it? Wait, did I read it? <laughs> I have read Jesus the Christ by James E. Talmadge yes. and, and Articles of Faith. I don't think I've read the Great okay. Apostasy. Yeah, I was just wondering what his spin is because just what I know about Talmadge, it seems like well, although he may accept this narrative, he also seems like the sort of guy who would have goodness in all things and value in all things. Well, Discordians, let us know. If you want to write a paragraph on what James Talmadge uh, thought about the great apostasy, if you think that he was dismissive or celebratory, then let us know in our Discord server. We've had some great discussions there. You know, our episodes don't come out very often, so discussion in Discord <laughs> room doesn't happen talk. very often. But, um, you know, we, we, you know, let us know. Yeah, it's also weird... Aaron, on this episode, because I feel like, on the one hand, um, we came in agreeing yeah. with the article, and yet I don't feel like I've been able to express myself as clearly in this episode as usual, even though you would think it would be easier when I'm mostly just agreeing with the article's conclusions. Yeah. I just think, I 100% agree with you, and I think the reason is because the history is so hard to follow. And also, like, I'm not going to pretend that I'm not ignorant. Yeah. Um, one of the things that bugged me about the article, and I mentioned this earlier in passing, is she would often say that aspects of the great apostasy is simplified by church members in the past that don't match up with scholarship. I mean, no scholars agree with this, no scholars can like back it up. And I was like, who are these people? Who are these people? And what I realized by the end is like, this is just a universal truth. It would be like if uh, in the 18, from about 1890 to 1950, many members of the church said there's no such thing as gravity. And she's like, most scholars don't agree with this, and I'm demanding to know who the scholars are. It, it almost feels like it's that obvious. If you're familiar with the field, you know that a lot of things we say about the Great Apostasy are wrong. And she doesn't even have to explain it because just you wrong. should know. Yeah. 
And that, that's a little humbling because um, usually I feel kind of smart when we have these discussions, even reading articles by people who know a lot more than I do. I feel like I know enough to hold my own, but I do really feel my ignorance uh, about. Yeah. Of all the articles that we've read, this is the one that made me think, wow, what am I even doing here? Yeah. <laughs> this is the one that made me think I am not a historian, right? Yeah. Um, and I even like to read on Wikipedia. Yeah. I've read about a lot of saints yeah. and uh, a lot of popes, and I still feel totally dumb. Do you have an example of um, a common belief about the great apostasy that is in this article that's debunked here by uh, Dr. Wilcox? Well, I'll give you one that every LDS medievalist I know returns to most frequently. Okay. Is this real pet peeve of people, and this isn't just a lot of these same terms, but people calling it the Dark Ages. Yeah. As if nothing happened, as if only people killed each other, as if it was all the Crusades and not like science wasn't happening and literature wasn't happening and art wasn't happening. Like a lot happened in those years and a lot of, a lot of good things, a lot of excellent people lived in those years who did excellent and wonderful and beautiful things. And um, the, the whole metaphor of the Dark Ages, which you can kind of feel her skin bristle at when she mentions it. I was surprised she capitalized it, honestly. <laughs> that must be a BYU study style guy, because you can tell she doesn't give the term Dark Ages that much respect. <laughs> um, just this whole metaphor that it was everything was darkness then. And I know that's not a specific example, but it's an attitude. Yeah. And I think that attitude deserves to be dropped off. Let's, let's restore ourselves enough so that we know that the ages weren't all dark. Interesting. Interesting conversation. I appreciated the, the words... Um, I feel like my own narrative and how I talk about history has changed uh, since yeah. I've read this article. I think I'm going to be more careful. Are you going to bring it up in seminary? Um, probably. You know, um, I try not to directly crib from our episodes <laughs> when I teach seminary, but you know, I'm not going to say I don't a little bit. And um, I'm also not going to remove the word apostasy from my vocabulary, right? I think it's a useful word, but I think it might require... Every conversation might require defining what we mean by it. Yeah, things are going to become more nuanced and interesting, I think, as we move forward. Which is kind of like a, a general thesis of history. And like anybody who studies it realizes that nuance is the is the word. Shall we end with the uh, burn? Um, Sure. There's a burn in here. Did I, you catch it? I guess I didn't. Uh-huh. The burn involves the phrase "remains to be seen." Okay, and this is what okay. I, re I really, I really enjoyed oh, it. Does sound familiar? Uh huh. Okay, this is in two thousand nine. The press release for the dedication of the Church History Library. All right. Here's what it says: The Mormon worldview compels a historical consciousness. Upon joining the Church, each member becomes a participant in the great unfolding of God's redemptive plan. Since the beginning, individuals and societies have sought their place within the larger network of human relations and tried to make sense of divine interventions. This is still quoting from the Church History Library. Um, dedication. An active engagement in historical processes eliminates barriers imposed by time and space and enables Latter-day Saints to situate themselves within the great sweep of history. The Mormon historical consciousness impels one to step outside the comfortable confines of the present, develop empathy to understand the past, and in turn, lay the spiritual groundwork for spiritual for future generations. That's an awesome paragraph, and yeah. it's a great call to action. You know, this phrase uh, um, 
it almost re- it's you know the anxious the, the phrase anxiously engaged in a good cause yeah. right an active engagement in historical processes it's kind of like it's calling back to those phrases from the doctrine of covenants yes okay and then dr wilcox's comment is the degree to which latter day saints revise their historical narratives to align with these goals remains to be seen I do remember like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you shouldn't characterize it as a burn. No, I think, I think this is the end of part one and, Mm -hmm. and maybe this is her question. Like, are we capable of revising our historical? And in fact, that's the question from the very, at the very end. Uh, She asks, could Latter-day Saints narrate an ongoing story of restoration as a divine redirection of existing Christian identities towards fullness in Christ? She's, she's asking, can we do this? Are we going to get there? You know what the secret is. What's that? You got to put your face in the hat. You do. You got to put your face in the hat. We're a proud member of the Dialogue Podcasting Network. I'd like to thank Dr. Wilcox for this article. Dr. Miranda Wilcox. It was very good. Um, read the BYU Studies Quarterly. It's very cool. Um, like to thank Daniel Foster Smith for our music. If you want to find me, I'm at Aaron Brewster on Twitter. And Eric? I am at Amazing at Twitter, and I'm showing up on other places I'm not actually there. But yeah. I have accounts all over the place. So. Yeah. But best place to find us is on our Discord. Yeah, come to Discord. It's fun, kids. Yeah. Um, any other comments here at the end? Let history be an act of historical I would say, you know engagement what? process. One more thing to say. Like, do come to our Discord. Do reach out to us on Twitter. Like, do do something. But tell us some cool historical tidbit from between the years... 50 and 1820 that you think is just really interesting and worth knowing and like share them like i'd love to see some and throw some wikipedia into your sunday school lessons yeah that's what it's for we've had our current sunday school teacher has been doing stuff like that with the oxford english yeah you think god didn't give us wikipedia for a reason oxford bible yeah they're very good (laughs) and um it's nice okay so right here at the end we were thinking a little bit about tone for this show right because we were review we were just we took a break and we were talking about it and we were just thinking, did we really hit the tone that we were looking for? And it's interesting because the article spends a great deal of its time in kind of a negative zone, right? Saying, um, arguably, yeah, arguably, yeah, where it's like this is this this framing of the great apostasy wasn't was not where where we want to be, and this better engagement with history is better, right? Yeah. Do you think that's right? Um, Possibly. I honestly think her tone is tricky to read. Yeah. Because her language is a bit more academic than most of the articles we've read. Um, The academic tone, which is not really a tone, but it can mask or, or rather it allows people to reflect a tone they wish to see. Yeah. So I don't know if that's necessarily true or if it's just my feelings, my own evolving feelings about the apostasy mm-hmm. being reflected back at me. Um, what tone do you want for to, to convey? I, I, I think I'm very hopeful. I, I'm certainly looking forward. I am hopeful. And I, I guess what it is, is I'm just sad that I don't know more about this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I read Thomas Cahill's book about how the Irish saved civilization 20 years ago, and I love that book. Hmm. And um, I've read it, and it's really stuck with me. And that's probably the closest thing to a scholarly work, an extended scholarly work I've read about that time period. Mm-hmm. Most of my uh, personal interests just haven't taken me to that space. But yeah, I mean, uh, Melissa Lilani Larson, 
LDS playwright, wrote a terrific play about Joan of Arc. And if I'm remembering correctly, the way it works is when God speaks to Joan of Arc, it, it takes place entirely one night she's in an English prison. Um, the voice of God is entirely cribbed from the Doctrine and Covenants, which is a really interesting artistic choice. And it works really well in the play, but it adds an additional layer. And I, I think if I could rewrite my tone in this episode, what I would want to say is that I do believe, A, that it is possible for someone like Joan of Arc to be a, a woman of God and for a restoration to be necessary simultaneously. Like I do, I, I reject the idea that apostasy is absolutely necessary for the restoration, even though it says that in Preach My Gospel, which is something we didn't quote, but she quotes that. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's more nuanced than that. And I think that um, I really do believe in Joseph Smith's version of God, a loving father who embraces everyone with and without law from every culture in every time period, and everyone has something to give. And the restoration in this sense is almost another word for atonement, that everyone will be atoned. Jesus is there for everyone, no matter what they know, when they knew it, and what the church looked like on the earth at the time. There's room for everyone. And that I think is really beautiful. And and I am hopeful looking at what leaders say these days that we will find a way to emphasize our Latter-day Saint concept of a restoration and an atonement that is for everyone. If you don't mind me um, saying just a little science here. I love science. Okay. One of the things that and I've used this, this example before, but um, the earth is not flat. The earth is round. Okay. I've observed that myself. <laughs> the difference between a round earth and a flat earth is, you know, 0. 0.000 something degrees, you know, as you walk a mile. Uh-huh, right. It's a big earth. It's a big, big earth to the point where if you wanted to build a building, you can assume it's flat, mm -hmm. right? The difference between our religion and others is not that big, Okay. It's Christ, it's baptism, it's love your fellow men, right? And this is what I think that President Nelson is trying to say. We will add some stuff about authority, right? We will, we will teach you about the celestial, telestial, and terrestrial kingdoms. But you trying to be good? We'll keep trying to be good. <laughs> Do you think, That's Aaron, cool. that perhaps... Um, by moving past the 20th century's idea of apostasy, we are creating, or, or rather we are demanding of ourselves a greater humility, that it's it's not so much that our church is, quote, better, unquote, than other faiths. It's that um, we are, we should be the servant of all. We have something we're supposed to give, and it's not about people coming unto us because we're awesome. It's it's more about uh, too much is given, much is expected, and we're, we need to go out and serve. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, it's good to have an identity, right? Um, I'm a Mormon. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, that that is a deep cut. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thank you.
a Mormon. Yes, I am. So if you'd like to see a Mormon, I'm a living specimen. Maybe I look like guinea. Everybody else is here or something. I take my word in the room, different as can be. <laughs>